From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. Our national historic preservation laws suggest they shouldn't be protected, but they are being protected. States are adding a layer of their own state laws to give protection, and not to monuments generally, not to kind of commemorating losses generally, but specifically to Confederate monuments because of the role that they play in carrying forward a a story, a narrative that is a false story of the Civil War. Welcome to Season 10 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. In the confrontation around Confederate monuments that have shaped the landscape of the South, the primary focus has been the decision to remove or not. On today's Takeoffs and Landing show, environmental and property scholar Jessica Auli forces us to consider how the afterlife of Confederate monuments is shaped by law and politics. Hi, uh, this is Charlton Copeland uh, at the University of Miami uh, Law School, and uh, I am here with my colleague Jessica Auli for uh, a segment that we started last semester in which we talked to colleagues about um, both their published work and forthcoming work. Uh, This is a piece that is forthcoming, the title of which is The Afterlife of Confederate Monuments, and It is uh, co-authored with Jess Phelps. Um, So I want to thank my colleague, Jessica Auli, for um, this really great paper and um, this really great series of papers. And so that's where I'm going to start. What made you get to this space uh, uh, to write about now for the fourth, almost fifth time, um, Confederate Monument? Yeah, we came to Confederate monuments, I think, perhaps unusually, because my co-author and I are both experts in land conservation, uh, conservation easements, but that also comes in with historic preservation and property rules. We're also both property theorists. So we had been reading the newspaper in 2017, in August 2017, after the Unite the Right rally in in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the uh, struggles that happened there, both uh, surrounding the Confederate monument, the Robert E. Lee monument in Charlottesville, and then the aftermath of it where Heather Heyer was killed by counter-protesters. So we had find, I had been reading about this, and one of the solutions that people had been proposing to these Confederate monuments was to place them on private lands, and that if we move them to private lands, there would be a different series of legal restrictions and uh, both with regards to rallies surrounding them, but also with removal efforts. My first thought was, uh, I wondered how often these were showing up in private parks. There's a lot of private Confederate parks around. Uh, A lot of these parks and museums have historic uh, preservation restrictions on them. They have tax breaks associated with that. So initially, I was really interested in how many of these when we move them to private lands, might be benefiting from public tax breaks and things like that. And I was also wondering which organizations were involved and were they the same that were doing land conservation? But what we quickly found was that the discussion of Confederate monuments as being either public or private was really a false dichotomy. 
and that there was this huge middle ground of things that were maybe on private lands, but had public money. Maybe they were on public lands, but there was a private organization that had the rights to maintain it. So we found this really kind of complicated soup of all these different property relationships. And so we started off just documenting that. So we have our initial piece is just this documentation where we kind of categorize all these different patterns. We saw these mixtures of public and private ownership, and then also a little bit, just an introduction into what that mixture might mean. So then uh, after we kind of documented that official kind of typology that we created, that we acknowledge there's probably even more nuances that we put in there, we then started to dig into them. So that's why there's a series of articles. We then started to think about what does it mean for the ones that are just on private land, for example? What types of rules do they have and how different they are from the rules on public land? Can I interrupt you for a second? Absolutely. Did you, how far in did you know that this was going to be a multi-part project? We initially thought it was a two-part project. We wanted to write a very quick, short piece that we would put on an online law review that was just acknowledging these typologies. And we wanted to put that out quickly because it was a very active area of, not of scholarship yet, but an active area of discussion in the press and communities that were really trying to figure out what to do with their monuments. So we thought it would be useful to community groups. And, and many local governments and community groups did reach out to us to ask us for advice and for guidance. And then we thought we would write one piece that gave us time to get a little bit into the details of the typologies where we could have a few more pages and a little bit more time and gather a few more examples to show people what we meant. Uh, but as we wrote just about one part of it, we just wrote about what role do historic preservation laws play? And it was suddenly such a long piece. We're like, okay, well, we that can't be just section one. This has to be its own article. Right. And so that just kept happening. Also, the things that kept happening along the way is that things would be a little bit more complicated than we thought. I think a lot of um, academics or scholars run into this. You start asking one question and you're like, oh, there's another question underneath that. Oh, and there's examples of something else totally different happening over there. Just the idea of like communities taking down Confederate monuments ended up being just from a property law standpoint. Only I'm only looking at that area. So complicated. So let me ask this question. Um, what it has been the relationship across these particular um, domains of of property law writ large, right? So if we think about where uh, you and your co-author started, uh, at least in the in the bigger project, the historic preservation laws versus the sorts of laws and agreements that you guys explore in this particular article. Are there conflicts? Are there consistencies? What's what's that look like? Well, I have a larger nervousness surrounding the role that private organizations play in, in protecting environmental and historical benefits, right? So there's a lot of questions that I've written about over the years throughout my work that is really questioning these private conservation organizations and the significant tax breaks going to private landowners, are they really giving us the public benefits that we're hoping for? So I've always been a bit skeptical about both the tool of conservation easements or preservation easements, and also some of the organizations that are involved in there. And I don't mean to kind of label all of them as sketchy organizations. Some of them are doing amazing work, but there's some questions to be asked about who's really benefiting from these. 
I had that same nervousness with historic preservations protecting Confederate monuments. There's a lot of things within our historic preservation laws, uh, within our um, uh, kind of our monument protection ideas that show that the law is really structured to protect Confederate monuments at the state levels. Our national historic preservation laws suggest they shouldn't be protected, but they are being protected. States are adding a layer of their own state laws to give protection and not to monuments generally, not to kind of commemorating losses generally, but specifically to Confederate monuments because of the role that they play in carrying forward a, a story, a narrative that is a false story of the Civil War. This is really interesting. It, I, it, that is to say the, the, the insights that you came into this project with, with respect to the role of private actors. Um, and, and, and let's just put it on the table. I don't want to, because I know we don't have that much time, but I want to kind of dive into this article. Um, you um, and, 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 and Jess Phelps seem to say, look, you know, I know it sounds good <laughs> to local governments to, to try to address the challenges of these uh, monuments in public hands. I recognize that there is a kind of public messaging problem. There's a public uh, uh, speech uh, and, and sanctioning issue here. But let's think about the alternatives that you guys have fairly quickly taken up. Let's expand on that. Why ought cities, um, to the extent that they can, given what you just said about some of the restrictions that are taking place, um, why ought cities to be um, cautious about entertaining transfers over to private entities? Or how hard should cities fight when private entities uh, come with attempts to claim ownership of those monuments? Well, let me first situate this piece in, in, in what we're talking about here, which is we are taking the local governments that have chosen to remove their Confederate monuments. So in other earlier pieces, we and, and other scholars might kind of go into that process. How mm -hmm. does it happen? Mm -hmm. Now we're like, OK, you want to remove it. Right. Your city is determined to get rid of this thing. Where does it go now? What do you do with it? And you can see a temptation by a local government when a Confederate heritage group, and there's two of them really, like the Sons of Confederate Veterans, though probably being the most active, and the United Daughters of the Confederacy having the best legal claims, mm -hmm. right? It's really tempting to just hand it to them. Uh, it, and it sort of fits with a kind of state action, private sort of model that we seem to respect in other places in our, our, our public life. Sure. And if you think to yourself, Okay, the real problem with this is is that we don't want this to be a public message to say that our community supports these values of the lost cause narrative and the values of racism that these monuments really stand for. That's not who we are. Let's hand it to somebody else and that's who they are and we've removed it. The problem is when you hand off that monument to the private entity, you lose control over that monument. You've now lost control over what they're going to do with it. And some of them have undertaken relocations that make the monument still feel very much like a public message. 
for example, one was placed at a ferry crossing. So all the people coming across the river was actually the first thing they saw when they entered. But on private property. On private property. On private property. And it was a private entity that ran the ferry. And um, this is in Rockville, Maryland. And you might not have that perception uh, yourself that as you're coming across the ferry that that's private property and that's a private message. There's an, there's some stories, there's two different ones where they're they're placed so close on private property, but so close to public property that as a person walking by them, you wouldn't have a sense of whether they were on private or public land. Mm-hmm. And they still kind of serve them the same purpose they had before of promoting and sending this message. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a community that actually wants to to remove that message and to remove the pain that it causes people, simply transferring it without putting more restrictions on it. For example, putting a restriction on where they can display it or how they can display it might not be the move your community wants. And so some communities might act too quickly to pass that on when, when we actually encourage them to stop and think about what that means. Now, some places they don't have a choice. Some places these actually, you know, this is, comes back to that messy public-private ownership. Uh, some of them where the uh, United Daughters of Confederacy has been able to show that they actually own the monument, the city might have no choice but to, to return it to right. them. Yeah. Right. Now, and in some places, I would imagine, given what you guys say uh, about the state preemption attempts, through uh, statute uh, with respect to, to local decisions to remove and um, uh, and relocate uh, certain of these Confederate monuments, right? Some of them, uh, again, according to your, the article says, you've got to place them in as prominent a place as they were. And so how, how big a constraint is that or has it been for, 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 for cities in, in real time? Yeah, so it's so case specific mm-hmm. to look at each of these monuments because we are talking about the monuments having different property and ownership. We are talking about the local governments having desi- different desires about what to do with them. And then we're also talking about states that have uh, what we call state statute statutes, which are just these state preservation laws that add an additional layer that prevent the local government from doing whatever they would want with right. them. And some of them have strategically done things like convey actually purposely convey it to a private entity so that the private entity was removed from those constraints. Um, I will also just say as a background that most Confederate monuments are still up. We aren't talking, most of the majority of them are are out there and still in their communities. So it's not that many that we're looking at that are being removed and that they're trying to figure out what to do with. So there are a lot, though, that end up in storage Mm -hmm. pending this decision that you're talking about. Okay, we've removed it. But we have to place it in as prominent of location. To many, the most attractive places are going to be cemeteries or museums, mm-hmm. or maybe a historic site like a battlefield mm-hmm. or somebody's birthplace. And so those are kind of the hoped for destinations or the uh, by many local communities is something they feel like they could live with. But in the meantime, they're in storage. That's uh, also really expensive. Many of them are super heavy. So it's right. really hard to just physically, logistically. And how many how many Lee statutes can the birthplace of Robert E. Lee support <laughs> from across the state of Virginia? Right, right, it's, it's, right. Uh, right. Um, this is and and you you cabined this, right? You said, look, there are there are a host of other ways of thinking about this. I've tried to think about this in these ways, and it's incredibly fascinating. 
I want to ask, um, because as an environmental law scholar and as someone who does land work in the environmental space, you've dealt with regional particularities, the West, right? How is this set of projects felt? Because, you know, you, you say in the paper, all of these statutes are Southern, right? This is, this is, um, this is in some sense a very Southern set of configurations. How is that felt as you've kind of worked through this over these four or five projects? That's an interesting question. Uh, the, in the environmental realm, there are kind of definitely regional attitudes towards environmental issues and regional attitudes towards how much uh, environmental protection one wants or what one's priorities are. One of the differences, however, is really the spillover effects of environmental law. It's really hard for you to say we have this attitude towards environmental law in the South when your factories are pushing out acid rain that happens in the North or vice versa. So it is hard to put it as a real local issue in environmental law. Even if the local governments are where the action is happening, there's going to be pressure from outside. This is really different because the pressure isn't really coming from outside. We don't have so many people. There might be a couple allegations of it happening, but it's really rare for the protesters to be people from outside the community. On either side, either mm. the people who want it or the people who want to take it away. Mm. There really are it's the local communities grappling with what they want their social messages to be, what their morals are in that town. And so it feels quite different to me than where you feel some need to step in. And in that way, it is less of a, an example of where we might call upon a federal mm. or a regional rule mm. or even mm. a state rule. No, I mean, you, you tell the story about, right? The, the city of Louisville saying, hey, a city like us, we don't need this. Let's send it down to our downstate <laughs> neighbor who wants tourism, right? I mean, that, and, and you think about it as, you know, exporting pollution as it were. If, I mean, if you think about this, this bad um, or this blot that, that the, the mayor of Louisville seems to think it is for Louisville, but clearly it's not that for the, the the sister city recipients of, of this gift, as it were. Sure. In Charlottesville, as they're grappling with what to do with the Lee Monument, and this one is particularly emotional because of all the controversy that happened around it, they they put out a bid. What, what should we do? Who wants this? Who has ideas? And a ton of local governments from Virginia, but also from other places, raised their hand and said, you know, we would like it. We actually think it would contribute to our town. And that's a question of like, do you let them do that? Now, Charlottesville said, we're not going to export this. We are not going to take our pain and send it elsewhere. Right. But right. another community who doesn't have the money to move mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. might happily mm -hmm. take that option. Do you, and this is sort of where I, I again, to come back to, to your, your environmental work, um, where you see urban-rural divides, right? You, sure, again, absolutely. The city of New Orleans. Right. In 2017, one of the reasons why I picked up my phone early is because I wanted to try to see what the what the date was when uh, uh, Mayor Landry, uh, Mayor Landrew decided to, to remove those monuments from the city, cities like Louisville, cities like Richmond and smaller places inside of those same states are saying, no, those aren't the decisions that we make. And 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 and, and whether and, and the ways in which there are overlaps, we don't use plastic straws. We don't use plastic bags. What do you think about about this re-articulating that divide 
both in this space and in the environmental space. You could talk about this on almost any issue. There's so often that we want to argue that local communities should shape their their community. And yet you could be really sad when they make the decision you don't want them to make, right? And so this has happened in, in Virginia when they uh, changed the statute to allow local communities to have referendum to decide whether or not they would keep their Confederate monuments. It did not result in removal of the Confederate monuments. Communities voted to keep them. You could think of the same thing happening, I don't know, on public health issues, a community voting to remove a mask mandate, you know. And the question is, when do those when do those decisions really affect the local community and when do they affect the, the broader view? Now, an environmental parallel to this is that a lot of communities will vote for growth restrictions. Uh, or vote for things that are going to limit people coming to affordable housing, things like that, that are going to harm outsiders. In some ways, a good parallel for kind of keeping some of these uh, monuments in place could be things that prevent affordable housing. What you're doing is you're sending a message to certain people that you don't belong in our community. You're not welcome here. That is not the our social ideas and our moralities of our community is one that supports white supremacy. Do you really want to come here? That can be similar to the communities that have different kinds of NIMBY rules that prevent mm-hmm. affordable housing, mm-hmm. don't allow for certain access to, to resources. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's it, and it, 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 go back to the paper. It's, and it's one thing for that to have been the statement in 1895. It's another thing for a city to say in 2021, yes, we will take that, that monument. And so I, I think you're absolutely right to, 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 to point that out. I want to say, uh, Thank you, uh, Jessica Owley, for taking the time to, to chat with me. Uh, when we started this, she says, I don't know that I have that much to say to take up this time. And uh, here we go. Thank you so much for this really great paper. Thank you for this series of papers. And thank you for this great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for The Explainer and a whole new season of Explaining. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is sponsored by Miami Law's Five Centers and Institutes including the Ralphie Boyer Institute on Condominium and Cluster Development and the Center for Ethics and Public Service. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.